0: Luke chapter 22, it has over 70 verses in it. (laughs) So we will see how far we'll get. Some of this will be repetitive because our text was taken from this on Sunday. So let's um, begin by looking at the first six verses of uh, Luke 22. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him but they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. Then he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. We have the The betrayal Um, in the other Gospels tells us the amount that the betrayal was for. But my desire to link the Old Testament with the new, I'd like to begin by turning back to the book of uh, Zechariah. It's uh, right before the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Let's begin our study with two rabbit trails. Um, Chapter 11 is basically... Um, a chapter that is titled The Rejection of the Messiah. So that's the first part of, of the chapter. And then it switches as we pick it up in verse 12. It says, Then I said to them, If it's agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, then refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, with Judas's betrayal, somewhere afterwards, um, here we're told, we'll talk a little bit about uh, demon possession. The only two people that I know for sure were possessed by the devil Lucifer um, was Judas, and future tense will be the antichrist and what's interesting that is we have both of them right here in Zechariah chapter eleven. So we know that after he betrayed the lord he he um, he was convicted he, he ended up hanging himself, but before he did that, he went back to the temple and he says. Here, take it. And they threw it down. And they had a, uh, the, the elders of the, of, um, of the temple had a little discussion saying basically we can't take it back. This is blood money. We can't put it back in with a clear conscience. So what they did is they bought a potter's field. That way they had a piece of property but it wasn't put back into the treasury. It's called blood money. So when we read this, Um, especially verse 13, throw it to the potter. That's the reason they threw it to the potter. They bought the potter's field. There's a lot in here, a lot of symbolism, I think. Um, Boy, we could really get sidetracked on this one. What is is potter? Well, you you put clay on a wheel and you make something out of it. And um, in this case, if, if it didn't go well and he put it in the, the, the kill, and and it, and it somehow broke. Well, he would his backyard would be full of broken potter's um, clay. All right, you and I are made out of clay, out of the dust of the earth. And um, how and what were we purchased with? Well, the priceless blood of Jesus. So even in this, there's a symbolism that... Um, that he happened to buy a potter's field. How symbolic of who we are. Broken people, broken vessels, purchased um, um, for these 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of, of the betrayal of the Lord. Now, as, as we continue on to the rest of the chapter, again, as we study the Old Testament, we want to, again, be sensitive. What we've just done here is, in the first Uh, 11 and 10 verses, we're talking about the Messiah being rejected. How he would be betrayed is in 11 and uh, 12 and 13. But now in 14 through the rest of the chapter, we find that I cut in two my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, now we're changing gears again and we're going to be talking about the Antichrist. The only other person that I know was possessed literally by the devil. We have both of them here. For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land uh, who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that stand still. But he will eat the flesh of the fat, and uh, tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd! Um, it could say in your Bible, the idle shepherd, or the the vanity of this man. He's talked about in um, Daniel chapter eleven. He's talked about here. Um, he's um, uh, it says who leaves the flock. In other words, he's not concerned for any one or anything except his self um, to be exalted and to be worshipped. But then it tells us what's going to happen to him. It says a a sword will be against his arm, and against his right eye his arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Now just keep your finger there. Well, before you do, let me just quote this here. Um, This is a reference to the Antichrist. In John chapter 5, verse 43, for taking notes, Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Now, Israel is waiting today uh, for their Messiah. A little confusing with the, with the news bites and the building of the temple. Um, the, the Jewish people that I've talked to that are messianic say the temple can't be built until the Messiah is there to build it, to give the instructions, to, to oversee the project. So in my mind's eye, they're, they're getting totally set up to accept the Antichrist as the Messiah, and he will build the temple. And if that's true, then it's later than we think. Uh, Turn quickly to Revelation chapter 13. And um, this is a reference uh, from Daniel talking about uh, the Antichrist. i pick it up in verse 3. It says, I saw one of his heads, as it had been mortally wounded, in other words, deadly, And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon. Now the dragon is the one, if you go back to chapter 12, verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about anti-Semitism, that Satan's only card that he can really... is try to destroy the Jewish people. And we had quite a lengthy Bible study on it tracing the history of anti-Semitism. We went to um, um, Esther and how they sought to destroy them through wicked Haman, that all the Jews must be killed. We followed it throughout history uh, to the Holocaust. And um, now we find in chapter 12 that Satan is cast out of heaven and he knows he has a short time, we read in verse 12, and that short time is three and a half years. What does he do? He goes after um, uh, 17 and the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and gave the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now what we read here is what gets the world's attention is a deadly head wound is healed. Now, I'm going back to Zechariah. And what Zechariah tells us is actually the details of, of the wounds themselves. First of all, the sword will be against his arm. I'm, I'm guessing some sort of assassination attempt. Uh, against his right eye, his arm will com- be completely withered and his right eye shall be totally blinded. And this was evidently a deadly blow that we we find um, in Revelation chapter 13. Now, in Revelation 13, um, again, looking at, uh, because of this event, again, the only thing that Satan has always wanted is to be worshiped. Uh, We find that as a result of this, the rest of the chapter is dealing with, um, look at verse 14. It says, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, this is the false prophet, that he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those that dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast, who was wounded by the sword, in other words, he was killed, A sword will be against his arm and his eye, we're told, and lived. And as a result of this resurrection, whether it's genuine, whether it's false, what we have here, let's go back to Luke and connect some dots. Luke chapter 22. We're introduced to Judas, and we learn from Zechariah and the other Gospels that it was 30 pieces of silver that he was sold for. But then, here in verse three, Satan entered Judas. And um, we also know that Satan uh, entered uh, the Antichrist. And after he came back to life, he was actually Satan in the flesh. And it says they worshiped the devil, um, the dragon, and all the world wondered after, who can, who can fight against this guy? We can't. So this is yet future. It happened once in the past, but it does raise a question. I get asked from time to time, and that is, can a Christian be demon-possessed? So let's just deal with that issue. Um, the answer is, equivocally, no. No born-again Christian. Light and darkness simply. That's probably the best way to describe it. You can't have light and darkness coexisting. Either it's light or either it's dark. And um, uh, you're the light of the world. And um, no born-again Christian can be possessed. Having said that, a born-again Christian can be oppressed. Okay? And that's very important to understand the distinction uh, between the two. Um, Paul says... In uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 12, because of the abundance of his revelation that the Lord had given to him, taking him to the third heaven and bringing him back down, that um, he had sent a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And you go, What in the world does that mean? And the answer is, I really don't know. <laughs> but it was a thorn in his flesh that he prayed three times to be delivered from. What's your point, Dwight? We're going to be looking at Peter here in just a little bit, where it says, uh, by the way, Peter, Satan has asked for you. And uh, we'll get into quite a bit of detail of that on Sunday. And um, uh, that he may sift you as wheat. So really, if there's really a war going on, we've been, been, been talking about the reality of the spiritual dimension uh, spiritual warfare, no, you can't be possessed by the devil. But you can be oppressed by demons if you aren't born again. Yes, there are many ways, knowingly and unknowingly, that people open themselves up to the occult and demon possession. And we get calls, I, want, I don't want to say all the time, but frequently, many, many, many over the years we've been here, where people have had to deal with uh, demon-possessed family members or friends, not knowing what to do, how to address it. And one-third of um, the Lord's ministry dealt with casting demons out of people. But for the record, if you're born again, you can't be demon-possessed. Good place for an amen. All right, having said that, the more you're a spokesman for the Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures teach more you are a target. Simon Peter, he was a spokesman for the disciples. So who does Satan ask for? Simon Peter. Well, by the way, Simon Peter, um, the devils asked for you and uh, to sift you like wheat. In other words, just to take you out, to shut your mouth up. And he says, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. So the Scriptures are clear, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high places. And unfortunately, America and American Christianity is woefully unaware of this spiritual warfare. Now having said that, today is, um, is it the 13th today? Or 14th? Well, uh, um. Uh, The 11th, 12th, and 13th in Haiti, I got um, an email asking for prayer because um, the whole country is celebrating and committing once again the nation of Haiti to Lucifer. And they got three days that they're doing this. It's been going on for the last three days. And they sort of sprang it at the last minute because they know that Christians are going to rise up and and pray against it. So this thing is just winding down down there. But from the government on down the whole country except of course the Christians have dedicated the country of Haiti to Lucifer. It's nothing new and um, uh, that's either just came to an end but it's an ongoing thing. I think I read there was 45 witch doctors that were coming from all over the world uh, to participate in this event. So, let's go back to Luke 22. We're not getting very far. Um, but here we have um, Judas being demon-possessed, and um, we find um, well, I'll just leave it at that. He's looking for an opportunity now, so he's been paid off. Verse 7 through 20, this was our text on Sunday. So let's reread it, and I'll comment briefly on it, because we spent quite a bit of time on the Passover on Sunday. Then the day of, came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover might be killed, And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters, and then you will say to the master of the house, Now the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room and there make ready. So they went and found as as it was said to them and they prepared the Passover. Now on Sunday, I hope some of you guys picked up the maps and the charts of the seven feasts, the ones that we put up on the the screen. We went back to Leviticus 23, talked about the seven feasts that were there. And um, also in Leviticus Um, how it was implemented. And um, if you want to get, I would encourage you to get that message. You can pick it up. Let's go down to verse 20. And when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Uh, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and said to them, Now this would be different from the traditional Passover Seder. On Sunday, I talked about there's 15 different steps in the meal that make up the Seder. The word Seder means order, a very chronological way of going about to observe the Passover. Well, it's changed right here. And now we have a new covenant being established. Uh, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now remember on Sunday I called the message Don't Ever Forget because in Exodus chapter 11 verse 14 it tells us that this will be something that you will do from year to year from generation to generation ongoing and since that time when death passed over by the way it was stuck in my head since Sunday, so I had to go home and watch the Ten Commandments. Four hours long, last night. I almost made it. <laughs> I got to the part where the angel of death was coming down. I mean, I got to the part where they were putting the blood on the door lentils and all that. And and uh, uh, Yul, Yul Brynner's uh, playing um, Ramses and almost made it, but I don't remember the Red Sea parting, so... Maybe I can catch the rest of it this evening. Um, but what a classic. Boy, do they know how to have make a script. And where are the producers like Sesebita Mills these days? TV shows are shallow, <laughs> no depth, uh, very little effort put into um, a set when the set on the Ten Commandments is just off the charts and, and the amount of... Um, doesn't it make you want to go home and watch the Ten Commandments? <laughs> I did. And um, um, just to follow up, because it was in my mind from Sunday. Um, but now this is different. He's, he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Now the Lord clearly hears saying, as we talked about on Sunday, it says that the volume of the book is about me. All the Old Testament so when we read about the Passover, Jesus is saying, and I quoted this verse on Sunday, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, he says, there he is. There's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Now, right before um, that event take place uh, took place, um, we're gonna find that uh, Satan once again Um, is going to come after the Lord, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 20, likewise he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is now the new covenant uh, in my blood, which is shed for you. So they're trying to take this all in, that all that happened, the whole, um, for thousands of years, the Jewish people remembering the Passover, how death passed over them, when the blood was applied to their door, now the Lord is saying, "No, it's all about me." So I want you to remember me. So the outline for the church—I know I'm being repetitive with this—but let's let's go back to it—is at Acts chapter two, the foundation cornerstone of, of what I believe should be uh, the cornerstone for for every church, and that is forty-two. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It means they had Bible studies all the time. And in fellowship, now we'll be having cake with souk afterwards in fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Well, this is what the Lord is saying here. Um, do this in remembrance of me. The breaking of bread is that the church, it's one of two things he asks us to do. One is... Uh, practice what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. What's the other thing he asks us to do? Believe and be baptized. Besides that, there's nothing else the Lord asks us to do except to love him. And Romans tells us if we love him, then all the rest of the commandments will be fulfilled because the law and the prophets all hang on if you love God. If you love God, you're not going to be ripping off your neighbor's lawnmower (laughs) because you love him. And you want to um, show the love of Christ to that, to that individual. So, and then the last one here, and in prayers. I mean, this should be the foundation stone of, of every church. I was looking at the lineup that just got over for um, the speakers who spoke at the uh, annual summit at Willow Creek, And it was about, oh, I'd say 10 to 12 different speakers. And I I read the whole booklet that they sent out. And the first thing I I noticed was the name Jesus was not mentioned one time. That every person who spoke was a CEO of some uh, major corporation or a motivational speaker. Uh, One guy was even an army-trained vet uh, that specialized in special ops, and he was going to show you how you can implement that into your church as a leader. But not one of them that I could see said, this person is a born-again Christian. And, um, you know, this just ended, and these are the models that are being put forth today. And I look at that, and I compare it to Acts chapter 2, and we wonder... Today, why people are unaware how late it is. They're not dealing with prophecy. They're dealing with um, how to create a program that will um, create a personality that has leadership qualities, okay? Now, we're gonna deal with that um, in verse 24, but hold that thought in mind. How to raise people up so that they'll be admired and looked to as role models in a leadership position, but before I get there, i got to read 21 through 23. Uh, but behold, the, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man to whom it is betrayed. Then he began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do the same. The Lord didn't say it was Judas at this point. He just says, "What well, am you going to betray me tonight?" And they all started saying, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And um, so in 21 through 23, of course, it was Judas Iscariot. Now we read in verse 24, were the disciples, but there were also rivalry among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who execute authority over them are called benefactors. So now he's talking about leadership in a worldly sense. And he says this is how the world does it. How do they do it? Well, they want the authority to raise up leaders who have the capacity to bring about an outward worldly success. And that's exactly what uh, Willow Creek is all about their conferences. Their influence has been profound. I've been around long enough to see it slowly work its way into the church, until the model that we just read in Acts chapter two is rare indeed. Well, there's still there's still good Bible believing churches, but it's not the main model that we see in America today. And so, when I say there's spiritual warfare going on, um. I would be shocked, and I know it's never going to happen, that at a Willow Creek leadership conference, they're going to bring in a guy from Haiti who's going to talk about the reality of spiritual warfare in the world today. It's not going to happen. But if I was the enemy, and I'm thinking, out how do I dupe people? I think one of his best ways of deception is uh, to get people to be content and um, think of anything other than that, that they're unaware that they're in a spiritual battle or that they're unaware that um, this model in Acts chapter 2, if you do that, we read the, the last part of it. As they did this, it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. So who's building the church? Is it CEOs from corporations? Or is it, as the Bible says, unless the Lord builds the church, we labor in vain. So our job is to do what? To be true to this book. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. And what the Lord says he will do is he will raise up and save people. And uh, as Chuck used to say, healthy sheep will beget healthy sheep. And it's really a, a mindset Jesus said, let this mind be in you, which was also in me, to think like him. So how does the Lord think? Well, first of all, he's telling us how he doesn't think. He says, this is how the world thinks. In raising up, exercising their authority over them. Verse 26, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger. And he who governs as he who serves... For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? But then he says, yet I am among you as one who serves. Now, who's greater, Jesus or the disciples? The answer, Jesus. But what he says, the the model, is just the opposite of the world. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. Now, well, let's read one more verse and I'll take you to Revelation. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, the idea of what is leadership, how should it be modeled? Well, not according to Um, um, raising up people who have the ability in a leadership role to have an authority to explain to people through programs and other things how to really be successful when the Lord is saying nope it's just the opposite Uh, you be faithful in the little things now turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 this is one of the promises to the seven churches Uh, verses 11 and 12, we're in the church of Philadelphia. He says, behold, I come quickly, hold fast what you have, that no one may take away your crown. In other words, he's saying, hang in there, persevere, don't give up. And then he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven uh, from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now that brings up more questions than it gives us answers, but it's what the Lord is referring to in the kingdom. So he's basically saying goodbye to his disciples and what we've read up to verse 30. Uh, the Lord is telling them that he had taken the lower position, that is what he did when he took my place on the cross. It's like a master getting up from the table and telling his servants, you sit down and eat and I'll serve you. When Jesus Christ came to earth, all mankind should have been his servant. Instead, he served mankind. He set a table of salvation and have and has invited us to this great feast of salvation. And so once we have that, we're asked to uh, take that and pass that along. All right, back to Luke chapter 22. And uh, we leave off, and we come now to Simon Peter. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, whole change of thought. The disciples are arguing amongst themselves who's the greatest, So here, I don't know if Peter was one of them that was in on this debate or not, but he addresses Peter at this time in the next uh, 31 through 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, this is gonna be our text for Sunday. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail and when you have returned to me, implying that he will have left him, then strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go uh, to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you will have denied me three times that you uh, that you know me. And Peter was thinking, you sure don't know me very well because that's the last thing I would ever do. Maybe these other guys, but not me, Lord. Remember, I was the one that got the divine revelation from heaven. Who do men say that I am? Remember, Lord, it was me that said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Don't you remember that, Lord? And uh, I think the Lord says, well, Peter, don't you remember that I said I was going to go to the cross and die? And you said, that'll never happen. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me who? Satan. Satan. So here Satan is trying to sift Peter, recognizing Peter as a a leader in the church, and now the Lord is trying to let him in on something that's going to be happening to him. And this is what we can't be naive about, that there really is a war, let's put it this way, to shut you up, to say nothing. Nothing. Um, uh, to be a closet Christian. Don't let anybody know. What are people going to think anyway if you become one of uh, them, <laughs> those people? Uh, at this point, let's turn to um, John chapter 17, where it says the Lord prayed for him. John 17, and I'm going to qu- quote verse 9. In John 17, verse 9, Our Lord prayed to the Father. He says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now he's talking about his disciples there. The Lord does not pray for the world. He died for the world, and you cannot ask him to do any more than that. He died for the world, but he prays for his own that that they will be kept while they are in the world. The Lord Jesus prayed for you today, it may be that you did not pray for yourself, but He has prayed for you. You know what the Lord actually prays for you? He says, I said, I don't pray for these only my disciples, but I pray for those who are going to believe on their testimony. And um, um, we have this will be developed in quite a bit as we actually do a, a biographical type study on Simon. Peter himself. All right, verses 35 through 38. I call it the realities of ministry. And he said to them, when I sent you uh, out the first time without money, bags, sack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said, but now, now that he's leaving and he's not going to eat with them again until he gets to the kingdom, he says, but now, He who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a sack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, this which is written must be accomplished in me. He was numbered with the transgressors uh, for the things concerning me that have an end. And then they said, look, uh, here's two swords. And he said to them, yeah, that's enough. That'll do it. Uh, The reality of what's going to happen to these 12 men is that they're all going to be martyred for their faith. Um, They'll all be killed except um, for John, who the Lord needed to keep around so he could um, finish up the book of Revelation. And he was the only one that died of old age. And this idea of, um, of being prepared for spiritual warfare, phew, um, what was it tonight walking out the door? Six police officers killed in Philadelphia? Is that what it was? And it's just, what, it's just every day. And you were, you were almost becoming numb um, to what's happening in our world and the need to actually put in measures to protect the flock. And um, so basically this verse catches a lot of people off guard. What do you mean? Um, Here's two swords. He's telling them to take swords. For what purpose? The Lord says, yes, that's enough. What does that mean? Well, let me put it to you in two ways. If you would come to my house and not knock on my door and make your way up to my bedroom at 3 o'clock in the morning... Uh, you're going to be met with a baseball bat. <laughs> because I have a baseball bat there for such an occasion. I also have a tennis racket. That's in case a bat just happens to come flying down from the attic. So that can be interesting, you know, flinging around. I always win, by the way. It'll take me a while. But in the church, um, I was talking, Chris called me this morning, Quintana, we were talking about the conference. We talked for an hour about how crazy it is in Southern California, and that he's surprised. He says, I'm amazed, Dwight, that somebody hasn't blown up a church yet. He says, it's only a matter of time. It's going to happen. Well, question, should we take precautions to prevent that? I believe that's what this verse is saying right here. Now, whether you know it or not, um, as you're sitting here, have we made those precautions if anybody wanted to come in to do damage? Oh, yeah. You're not aware of it, but there's people around that are fully prepared to uh, confront if we ever had to deal with that sort of a situation. And um, this is what the Lord is saying here. And he's saying, well, we got two swords here. And the Lord is saying, well, that's enough. (laughs) It used to happen to Pastor Chuck all the time. I only had one scary moment, and it wasn't really scary, it was really hilarious, maybe 25 years ago, right in the middle of a Sunday morning Bible study. I have a guy walking down the main aisle, carrying an American flag with a banjo connected. It was three instruments in one, and uh, he was making his way down towards the front. I think he got this far before the ushers got to him. And uh, he, wa- he wasn't armed, and uh, it was one of the craziest things I ever thought. I thought, well, what's he going to do when he gets here, you know? <laughs> He's carrying an American flag, instrument that could play three different things, and he was just making his his way up. And at Calvary Costa Mesa, um, they have guys that are just sitting out there waiting for somebody to take out Chuck. And it actually happens on on quite a regular basis. He has some of his bodybuilders in the fellowship. And uh, it's ended out in the middle of the street on Fairview more than once. Um, and Chris is saying, I just can't believe that we're still teaching what we teach because we won't stop teaching against sin, sexual immorality, homosexuality. And he's just said, I'm just amazed. that He said, it's only a matter of time. And uh, that's uh, that's going to happen. Did I get sidetracked on that or what? <laughs> Let's keep going. Verse 39. Um, oh, this is hard because there's no way that I can put into words what we're about to read. And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom. The Lord didn't stay in the city at night. He went and he had his regular spot. And his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place... he He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, remove this cup from me. The Lord was actually saying, if there's any other way that um, this that mankind can be redeemed without me going to the cross, that I, I want that. But he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. <sighs> I can't imagine the Lord needing an angel to come to him to strengthen him. But that's exactly what we read in verse 43. That what he was going through in Gethsemane is beyond words, Because there's no way that I can put in the words that it says he was in agony, verse 44, and he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood. Now Luke is the only one that records this. And uh, falling to the ground. Emotionally to the point that there was so much pressure upon him. I take this literally. Literally that his body began to sweat blood. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping um, from sorrow. And then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Now what's going on here? Let's go back to Luke chapter 4. And I just mentioned John the Baptist saying, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we find that as he is, um, let's pick it up with, um, well, let's just read the first 13 verses. This is when the Lord is beginning his ministry. What we're reading right now is the end of his ministry This night, he's going to be taken. He'll be up all night in Gethsemane. But here we read in verse 1 then, Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So he's just been baptized. John says, There he is. There's the Lamb of God. He's the one. And now um, he's led into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when he had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil took him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world at a moment's time, And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. Now, this is important when people ask the question, why, Why does God allow hurricanes? Why does God allow flooding? Why does God allow cancer? And the answer is that Lucifer is the god of this world to this day. Now, Jesus defeated Lucifer on the cross. And what Lucifer is trying to do here is to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. He says I'll give it to you. You don't have to go to the cross. Now this goes way back to his first times of a three year ministry and how does it begin? With temptation with an offer not to go to the cross. I'll spare you the trouble. All you have to do is get down and worship me. It's all yours. It's mine to give. And what we don't here is Jesus does not Dispute his claim That it was forfeited by Adam By Eve in the garden And then verse 7 Therefore if you will worship before me It's all yours And Jesus answered her and said Get behind me Satan For it is written you will worship The Lord your God and him only Will you serve Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle Of the temple and he said to him If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Notice what Satan does. He quotes scripture. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and if their hand shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now the devil can quote scripture. That's the other thing we're learning here. To the Lord himself. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said you shall not, Tempt the Lord your God. He quoted in scripture, but now in the right context. And when the devil had ended every temptation, so in this period of time, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, there were probably other places where um, the devil was involved, but if it is, it's not recorded, until... We get to, let's go back to Luke chapter 22, and we find that was at the beginning of his ministry. Who was there? The devil, trying to prevent him from going to the cross. Well, now he goes to the disciples, and he is um, once again. the torment of agony that, and the reality of what's going to happen to him. He's successful, but that what's interesting is what he says to the disciples. Why do you sleep? Arise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Um, Lucifer is the author of temptation. Um, to try to get you to not fulfill those things that God has called you to do in your walk with him. Brings us to verse um, 47. Let me just quote this. Satan's theology has no place for the cross of Christ. It was Satan who came to him in the garden. Um, It was at this time the Lord said to his disciples, pray that you enter not into temptation. And... um, It was hard, they were willing. That's where the scripture comes from. Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Good place for an amen. I wanna do the right thing, I wanna pray, I wanna resist every temptation, and my spirit is willing. Uh, Peter says, I'll never deny you, not me. He was willing in his heart to do the right thing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking um, to the disciples, Judas shows up with the multitude. One of the 12 went before him and drew near to Jesus and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant, this would have been Peter, the high priest and cut off his right ear. And uh, I can see Peter sleeping, waking up, rubbing his eyes and seeing these guys coming with their torches, taking out his sword and just lashing away. And I think as the guy ducked, he got his ear and took it off. And Jesus, uh, verse 51, answered and said, previt permit even this and he touched his ear and healed him i want to know did he pick it up off the ground and just stick it back on (laughs) did he just touch it and all of a sudden there's a new one there and there's one on the ground and one here you know my mind wants to know this was the last miracle that jesus did covering up one of the mistakes of one of his disciples and Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Uh, when I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Okay, this is Satan's, what he thinks is Satan's, um, or Satan thinks is his hour our victory, where he's actually going to be able to do in uh, the, the, uh, the the Son of God, then, having arrested him, they led him, and they brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed at a distance and um, they all had fled, including Peter, and we're told here that he was not there for the Lord, but at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. I recognize you. You're one of his disciples. But he denied it and says, Woman, I don't know what you're talking about. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You're one of them. But Peter gets a little bit more louder, man, I am not. There's number two. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. Evidently the Galileans had a a particular accent that gave them away, and Peter had that. And this time, we read another places that Peter actually began to swear. But Peter says, man, I do not know what you're saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, the Lord turned and looked at Peter at this point. Boy, what that must have been like. The moment the rooster crows, Jesus looks at Peter, Peter looks at the Lord, and he remembered the word of the Lord How he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Let me just get ahead of myself a little bit for Sunday so that you can think about it a little bit. And that is this truth and this reality. You don't know your own self. Can I say that again? You don't know your own self. You think you do. And um, what is going to become really clear on Sunday is how God has to teach us this truth. And the importance of really, number one, bringing every thought into captivity and sifting it through the scripture before you open up this thing right here. And um, number two, if what you're thinking and what you're doing is in contradiction to this book, then know this, you're wrong and this is right. (laughs) And yet this is what's going to be the main point on Sunday is how Peter learned this lesson the hard way. I'll never deny you. Do you think he was sincere? I believe with all of his heart. I believe he meant every word of it. There's absolutely no way that I would ever let that happen to you. And he did. Deny? Maybe these other guys, but Lord, not me. I would never, ever do that. Think he was sincere? absolutely he was sincere spirit is willing the flesh is weak and add to that spiritual warfare at a level that's never been repeated in human history where the Lord is trying to deal with the reality of what it must feel like just, just for a second and then we'll multiply it by a couple billion people what's the worst thing you've ever done in your life that haunts you Oh, you've given it to the Lord, and it's been forgiven. And you know the great thing about being God? He can take your sin and remember it no more. The problem with us humans is we can't. We still have an awareness and a conscience. Yes, I know the Lord has forgiven me of that. And he's never going to bring it up again. But it's still there. If I ask you, what's the worst thing you ever did in your life? All right, that's just one. Now, all your sins your whole life. What do you think the Lord is contemplating when he's in Gethsemane? The sins of the world, the reality of all of that punishment that I deserve, that you deserve, multiplied by how many? How many people have ever lived on planet Earth? How many people have sinned? Every single one. And some of them so horrible, question if it, genuinely repented, would he go to heaven? The answer is yes. He didn't, but that's the extent of God's forgiveness. And what he went through in Gethsemane just defies description, and he knew it. And that's why he said, if there's any other way besides the cross, when the father himself actually had to turn away, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the sins of the world were being placed there. And this preacher can't put it into words. Can't describe it. The agony that he talked about here. Prayed more earnestly to the point where the reality of what was about to take place caused him to to, uh, sweat. So after the Lord looked at him, Peter went out and wept bitterly. He wanted to do the right thing, but he just couldn't do it. And he was saying, well, we'll get to, I've given enough of Sunday's message away already. Verse 63. Now the men who had held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him in the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is that struck you? All right, this this is a game that the Romans called, it's called the hot hand. And once they could get a prisoner, and they knew it was in their power, they just made sport of him, so they would uh, they would blind him with um, um, something over his head, and then his job was to guess of uh, the soldiers around him which it was. So they would beat him to a pulp, and then they would take the mask off and say, "Okay, now you pick." It's called hot hand, home and game. Which one of us hits you? And um, um, of course, like a... Sheep to the slaughter, we read in Isaiah, so he opened not his mouth. He took it all. Isaiah, if you're taking notes, this this, I believe is literal um, from the book of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. Um, It says his face, or his visage, was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He was beaten, according to Isaiah fifty-two fourteen, uh, more brutally than any man has ever gotten a face physically here. Not mentioning the fact that they also ripped out his beard. And if you guys have beards and have that, uh, that, that would mean taking the skin, I'm sure, with it. Let's see if we could wind this up with this, and with many other things, blasphemously spoke against him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people. So now he's been up all night. Went to the garden to pray. The agony that drained him there. An angel had to come to strengthen him. He tries to tell the disciples the importance of prayer lest they fall into this into temptation. And so now he's up all night, and now it says, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you're the Christ, then tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe me. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Now, this is what they're waiting for. They're looking for some accusation to put him to death. And then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? This would have been in a sarcastic form. And he said to them, You rightly say that, and here is the word, I am and he said it to them in such a way that when he said the i am i'm uh, watching the movie last night with moses going up to the burning bush who shall i say sent me tell them i am has sent me seven times in the gospel of john there are seven i am statements And um, I'm the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the bread of life, so on and so forth, seven times. But it's also with those, that title, I am. I am that I am, and they knew exactly that's what he's saying here. Now, eventually you're gonna run across somebody that'll say, well, Jesus never said he was God. And what your answer to that is, well, yes, he did. Where did he say it? Well, in Luke chapter 23, verse 70, um, you said it, I am, but it's in the context of what have been what to a Jewish man would have been the same as coming from the burning bush to Moses. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? Uh, blasphemy, for we have heard it from ourselves from his own mouth, and at that point, Um, he was condemned. The trial and everything that took place that night went against every law that was in Judaism. Uh, The trumped-up charges, you couldn't arrest a a man and charge him at night, it was against the Jewish law. So they were breaking all of these, and yet this had to happen, because when you go back, and this is a good place to end with this verse, verse 42, Father, if you will remove this cup from me, um, then please do it. Boy, am I glad he did not yield. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. So, Gethsemane and um, this trial that took place here is the whole gospel. And um, it's right at our time. So let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, how can we put into words or how can we really grasp what happened in, in Gethsemane? How can we really understand the warfare as the enemy tempted you at the beginning of your ministry and brings you to this place in Gethsemane where once again uh, entering Judas Iscariot and betraying him? Lord, we thank you beyond words that, um, like Peter, there's uh, we want to do that which is right. And you show us so many times how, how we fail and that you truly know us better than we do. Uh, we're so grateful that you pray for us and um, um, that because of the finished work of the cross, there is therefore no condemnation for us. And we're just grateful, Lord. And as we leave the Wednesday night Bible study tonight, we remember, as you've told us in this chapter tonight, uh, don't ever forget the remembrance of me, this new covenant of Passover. And so, Lord, as we go, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Now this is what they're waiting for. They're looking for some accusation to put him to death. And then they all said, are you then the son of God? This would have been in a sarcastic form. And he said to them, you rightly say that, and here is the word I am. And he said it to them in such a way that when he said the I am, I'm uh, watching the movie last night with Moses going up to the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me? Tell them I am has sent me. Seven times in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. And um, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the bread of life, so on and so forth. Seven times. But it's also with those that title, I am. I am that I am, and they knew exactly that's what he's saying here. Now, eventually you're going to run across somebody that will say, Well, Jesus never said he was God. And what your answer to that is, Well, yes, he did. Where did he say it? Well, in Luke chapter 23, verse 70, um, you said it, I am, but it's in the context of what I've been what to a Jewish man would have been the same as coming from the burning bush to Moses. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? Uh, blasphemy, for we have heard it from ourselves from his own mouth, and at that point, um, he was condemned. The trial and everything that took place that night went against every law that was in Judaism. Uh, the trumped-up charges, couldn't arrest a, a man and charge him at night it was against the Jewish law so they were breaking all of these and yet this had to happen because when you go back and this is a good place to end with this verse verse 42 father if you will remove this cup from me um, then please do it boy am I glad he did not yield nevertheless not my will be done but yours. So, Gethsemane and um, this trial that took place here is the whole gospel. And um, it's right at our time. So let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, how can we put in the words or how can we really grasp what happened in, in Gethsemane? How can we really understand the warfare as the enemy tempted you at the beginning of your ministry and brings you to this place in Gethsemane where once again uh, entering Judas Iscariot and betraying him. Lord, we thank you beyond words that, um, like Peter, there's, uh, we want to do that which is right. and You show us so many times how, how we fail And that you truly know us better than we do. Uh, We're so grateful that you pray for us. And um, um, that because of the finished work of the cross, there is therefore no condemnation for us. And we're just grateful, Lord. And as we leave the Wednesday night Bible study tonight, we remember, as you've told us in this chapter tonight, uh, don't ever forget the remembrance of me, this new covenant of Passover. And so, Lord, as we go, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, Don't ever forget the remembrance of me, this new covenant of Passover. And so, Lord, as we go, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.